hello, hello. Welcome to another episode of Not D&D, which is brought to you by EM Live, part of EM World, the leading tabletop news and review site. I'm your host, Jessica, and this week with me, I'm very excited to have a guest, a talking about Brave Zenith. We have Giuliano. Giuliano, would you introduce yourself to everybody, please? Hi, hi. My name is Giuliano. Uh, I'm a writer and game designer, uh, mostly work in RPGs. Mm-hmm. Uh... I love <laughs> I love anime, RPGs, food, and that's basically what I write about in my games and of course Brazilian culture. Uh and that's kind of it. <laughs> those those are all really great favorite things to have and to put into games. So I think a lot of people will agree and approve. Um so like we said, we're gonna be talking about your game, uh, Brave Zenith, which um is an award winning game of the year uh, yes. by the Indie Groundbreaker <laughs> Awards. So congratulations on that. Um so if you do have any questions and you're watching us live right now, please feel free to put your uh questions in the comments and we'll answer throughout the stream. And if you're listening uh to the podcast, uh well you can catch us live at 10 p.m. BST every Monday on twitch.tv forward slash EM publishing to have your questions answered. Um, so before we jump in to talk about uh, the game, um, I'd like to talk a little bit about you first. Uh, so the question I ask all of my guests is, when did you start playing um, role-playing games? What was your first kind of memories of playing tabletop RPGs? Uh, I think my first memory, uh, my brother is, uh, he used to play RPGs. Oh, cool. uh, so he owned a lot of books, and I mostly just read them in, in secret. He kept on his closet, and I uh, okay. You know, <laughs> Stole, I was, Stole were, older brothers, yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah. They were uh, the vampire books. Uh, oh, yeah, yeah. Vampire the Masquerade. So like, yeah, mm-hmm. I wasn't supposed to read them. But then the oh, first okay. time I actually played was uh, when he GM'd the game Vampire the Masquerade for me uh, oh, when nice. I was a teenager, and mm-hmm. alongside around the same time I played. Uh, there was a school event on my school, and they and they sent some GMs from I think a local publisher, and they ran uh, they ran a short one shot of AD and D second edition, I think. Mm-hmm. Uh, yeah, those are like the first forays into RPGs. Yeah. Uh, yeah. And uh, hooked ever since then. Um, so when did you start uh, creating and writing games instead of just being somebody who plays and enjoys them? It was um, when I was in college. Uh, mm-hmm. I hanged around. I hang around a lot in the uh, Google Plus spaces that mm-hmm. uh, existed back when Google Plus existed, and <laughs> a lot of folks were making stuff that uh, mm-hmm. either on blogs or like making zines. And uh, you just kind of be around there and seeing people mm. who, let's say, who people who weren't calling themselves writers, writing books, basically. Mm-hmm. I thought that was uh, inspiring because it made me feel like I could do it. Like I always thought, uh, yeah. I, I always thought like writing is like, you know, it's like art, like painting and that stuff. Mm-hmm. You kind of born with the gift, whatever. And so to see like people, who, who are not, let's say, talented doing it. Like everyone is doing <laughs> it. No, like, yeah, yeah, yeah. no shade, but like uh, because it was so such a community effort. Like you know, they had yeah, like, yeah. Uh, tables people would fill in. Mm-hmm. Everyone would do an entry, and that was like fun. There were like little bits of writing you could do here and there. Mm-hmm. Uh, they were very casual, so that also like kind of made it exciting. Uh, yeah. and then I met a couple folks and we got together to do a zine that never came out it was mm-hmm. super fun i still talk to them to this day mm-hmm. uh and that was kind of how i got started and then when google plus died i i kind of went to twitter mm-hmm. and i met i met some folks like contigio who's a brazilian uh layout uh guy and mm-hmm. nate trem had it's from Highland Paranormal Society, I think he mm-hmm. does, and they were talking about pamphlets, pamphlet adventures, and how you can make them if you don't have a budget, basically, like yeah. you don't have art. Mm-hmm. So I was like, okay, let's try doing this. Uh, I got a couple of friends, and we wrote uh, Bakto's Terrifying Cuisine, which is the first adventure I released mm-hmm. officially as a pamphlet adventure, and it did really well. Awesome. Uh, yeah. 
<laughs> like surprisingly so and that kind of just started everything going and now you're making all sorts of games winning awards um yeah. and yeah writing a lot of the time and so your your kind of day job beforehand was it in kind of advertising or marketing did yeah. you say yeah and yeah. um, do that have a, like a few transferable skills for kind of creating and, and layout and things like that or is yes. this thing completely different yeah no no there's a lot of stuff because advertising uh advertising college is mm -hmm. not most of it is not advertising it's communication right uh sure. you, you go to a communication college that has an emphasis in advertising and a lot of the skills you learn are to do with like let's say traditional publishing stuff so you, you learn in mm -hmm. design photoshop adobe illustrator all this software that uh, like kind of help but also you 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 do take classes in writing and just communication in general. So it, it is mm -hmm. very helpful. And I don't yeah. know, like the advertising part, like I think I do a terrible job advertising. And also because oh, of no. no, no, it's just that advertising as in practical, like real world, it's just, it's not even, you can be great writer, great copywriter, whatever. Mm -hmm. But at the end of the day, it's, I, and this is my opinion, of course, but it's like, it's money. Like, if you don't have the money to advertise, it's not going to work, especially in digital yeah. platforms. Yeah. Uh, but yeah, I think that this communication school kind of mm -hmm. school of thought really helps. It's just, they they teach you how to be creative in a way, and that's uh, really interesting. And I, I, yeah, definitely a skill that, that transfer over. Yeah, I only asked because I did my degree in advertising as well. And when wow. I saw that, when I was doing some research before, I was like, ah, maybe this is old people that went into advertising now work in RPGs. We've given up on it. <laughs> um, but yeah, but um, we're here specifically uh, to talk about, um, obviously, Brave Zenith. Uh, so um, if you could give us a little pitch for that. So if you were describing the game to somebody that, that hasn't heard of it yet, how would you do that? It's a very simple uh, creativity first RPG inspired by summer nights playing PS1, PS1 games on a pirated PS1. Uh, so you're playing games you don't quite understand because they're in different languages. Uh, they are completely different from what you're used to. Uh, and you're in this warm, hazy summer night. That's kind of how I envision it. it mm -hmm. And, uh, and the rules kind of do a lot of the, yeah, I always I try to do everything in a way that whoever is playing is invited to create something, mm -hmm. uh, be it their abilities or just like how the world works. You know, I'm a very big fan, of course, of like these more sparse RPGs, where, like mm -hmm. the setting is not so defined; it is more broad mm -hmm. strokes. Because, uh, yeah, that's like. I'm going. I'm yeah, going. no, no. We, we've, we've got time to talk about it, so don't you worry. You can keep on going. Um, but yeah, I love the the sound of this uh, this this game because of kind of the setting as well. Because it's kind of um, post uh, apocalyptic. Could you talk about kind of the, the setting a little bit of the game? Yeah, I, I, I everyone. It's easy to call it post apocalyptic, but like, mm -hmm. I don't, I don't see it as post apocalyptic. I call it okay. Yeah, it's just a just a naming thing. I just call mm -hmm. it post fantasy because it's more about taking fantasy. Mm -hmm. uh, I consider it a fantasy game, right? But it's more mm -hmm. about taking fantasy and using like the post apocalyptic tropes to kind of give it a more usable language. Because mm -hmm. Brazenif came from me. I had an open table at my college, and I played a lot of folks who didn't play RPGs ever. Yeah. And like I kind of noticed like what they like, what they were struggling with, and mm -hmm. I tried to find a game that could run that. And then I made the game that I that it was that it's brave enough. Yeah. And the things I noticed was like people feel really awkward when talking about fantasy stuff, like fantasy names, mm -hmm. like uh, elven names. They always go like yeah. they have way too many <clears throat> apostrophes and too many letters, or like saying stuff like people don't like knights in armor. But if you give them like language that they understand, uh, mm -hmm. I found that that worked better. So like I started instead of trying to keep everything like in a way immersive and talking about like uh, like say period appropriate stuff, I would use examples from the reward. And I, I know like a lot of people do that when they play games. Like yeah, uh, you describe stuff using 
normal day-to-day stuff. Like uh, you don't say like, oh, uh, it's like a, a big lizard. So you say it's a dragon, whatever. People kind yeah. of figure that out. But mm-hmm. also to the other stuff. So uh, a lot of Brave Zenith is kind of just trying to make it easier to say it without feeling awkward. Yeah. So what I try to do. Mm-hmm. Uh, yeah <laughs> it's i mean it's i really like the look of it because it seems really accessible and um a lot of what we're trying to do the not D show is get people to try new systems or just to try tabletop rpgs for the first time and i think what you were saying there is so true that it can seem really intimidating if there's this big fantasy kind of D setting and there's all this world lore and knowledge yeah. and yeah and, and you don't know it um whereas yeah, like this, this game is not isn't like that you don't have to come having done a load of research (laughs) it's like the best example i i I can think of i I heard it recently i was watching um shan mccoy who did mothership talk about uh Mm -hmm. why like horror rpgs are kind of easier to get into is because people kind of know how things work because it is set in the real world so people know the name of how, how things work how naming works you know like they can feel they feel more Mm -hmm. comfortable and horror is really easy to do that also because like we know how it is to be afraid Mm -hmm. uh we love horror movies and all that stuff so that's that looking for that way of doing that with fantasy which i really like fantasy but like we end up with these dumb names and dumb things all the time (laughs) and sometimes just taking that making kind of fun of it and uh trying to make it more accessible in that sense yeah, um, I mean, we're talking about the kind of uh, characters uh, that you're going to be people will be playing in the game. Um, so I wanted to talk about the the origins because I saw there was, uh, of course, humans, which I was like, yeah, of course. Uh, and then we went into cat folk and then we had jellies as well, uh, which is very <laughs> intriguing to me. So could you talk about uh, the different origins in the game? Yeah, so we have three origins. One of them is humans. Uh, does, the twist to the humans in this one is that they are like they have created ideology and they're addicted to ideology ideology so they kind of make their whole society around that it's kind of like a jokey thing mm-hmm. uh but uh but that is the idea and then cat folk are like just cats that gain <laughs> sentience and they're still cats but they are also very open and welcoming to people they are like uh, accomplished cooks and it's not just because of cooking but because they like uh, you know uh, meeting people and sharing a meal mm-hmm. with them yeah. and jellies they're like the newcomers they are mm-hmm. little jellies that have sprouted from the ground uh, <laughs> <Amazing>. <laughs> yeah. yeah yeah and and since they're the new guys it's kind of the aware they have no social norms like they don't have no prejudices they don't they're the brand new, right? In a way, so they're trying to see everything. They're trying to in- interpret everything and kind of just figure out what they want, what, who they are. Yeah, it was the inspiration for the Jelly's origin meant to be kind of like new players exploring the world. Or when, when I started talking now, I kind of imagine how that could be interpreted. But no, it was more right. like, um, yeah, it's just supposed to be the weird little guys mm-hmm. that people are playing and uh mm-hmm. the idea was actually like i stole it from like uh dragon ball z like their margin boo it's like it's oh, just okay. a big jelly and i like that and he changes shapes and mm-hmm. uh that was the idea it was not that deep just very <laughs> it's not that deep okay <laughs> looking for it. um so uh this <laughs> You were saying as well, a lot of the, um, so you're a fan of uh, kind of JRPGs uh, and is that, can can that be seen in the game? Is that an inspiration point as well? Yeah, it's just the main map of the game. Uh, The name of the location where the world, like the world set, the archipelago, which is also called the nest, uh, is almost like a, a copy of Chrono Cross's world map. Mm-hmm. Uh, if I actually look at it, it has some of the same ideas behind it because I really like Chrono Cross because when I played as a kid, uh, it had a tropical setting. It was set on mm-hmm. the beach, and I yeah. I grew up in a city in a beach, a beach, mm-hmm. uh, and 
it was just so cool seeing that, seeing the elements that you see in a tropical country, you know. Uh, so I kind of, I love that and I brought it back for this. And there's sort of small references, like the world map has that Chrono Cross reference, but it also has like a, a continent that is shrouded in mist, which is something that a lot of JRPGs do, which is like the yeah. final area. <laughs> uh, it's supposed to be where the big bad guy is. Mm-hmm. And I kind of wanted to bring that. Uh, it also, like on the way the game is laid out, the inspirations were mostly old, um, you know, SNES, NES cartridge, you know, oh, yeah. boxes and uh, instruction booklets. They're kind of really colorful, very lively. You know, it's just mm-hmm. make it more exciting to read. Really. Mm-hmm. And, and the classes, uh, yeah, it's full of little details from JRPGs, like the classes called vocations because mm-hmm. uh, job systems, just to make more close to saying job system without saying job system. Uh, yeah, yeah. The classes are based off, of course, the classical archetypes, but also from... Uh, I, I wanted to give them very iconic looks mm-hmm. and feel like they do with the jobs in Final Fantasy. You know, like you look at Black Mage, Pointy mm-hmm. Hat, uh, Blue Robes, mm-hmm. that kind of deal. And that was a lot of the work with the artists was done to ensure that. And also like the choice of classes to keep it as fewer as possible uh, and to keep them as unique like I wanted to do a lot yeah. more, I did a lot more, but uh, in the end, I chose to keep them more unique and mm-hmm. visually distinctive as much as we could. And yeah, it's full of of bits and references everywhere. Uh, That's yeah. awesome. Like, if With people the... like games, they will they'll find it. Excellent. It sounds yeah, it sounds like there's lots of like nods to it in there. So if that's your thing, you'll find it. But I think. If that's not necessarily your thing, you're not going to be lost. You don't need to to have that that kind of information um, necessarily to enjoy the game. With uh, if we could talk about the vacations a little bit, because when you're creating your character, we talked about you'll have your origins. You'll you'll pick whether you're a human, cat folk, or one of the jellies, and then you'll pick uh, kind of your vocation. So could you talk us through them? Because I saw on there there was mixologist, which I was quite excited about. But I'm Everyone sure there are <laughs> loves mixologist. Sorry, it's British culture. We have an issue with that over here. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Uh, and uh, I, I absolutely adore the mixologist system. Probably yeah. my second favorite illustration in the book is the mixologist because he has okay. bongs for boots. Uh, that's like <laughs> a stupid idea artist had. But yeah, we got the freelancer, mm-hmm. which is the more traditional fighter type. It's the simplest mm-hmm. class. It's like cliche, you know, like in a way you want to play more straightforward as possible. It is yeah. the class that has no, like, uh, and the ability section has no creative input, but, like, there are some small details, like, what kind of jacket you wear, what kind of cool things you, mm-hmm. how you express yourself in these other elements of the class, be in this case, the equipment. Uh, we had the magic user, which uh, it uses a spell system. It's just taking two words together mm-hmm. and creating a spell out of it. But okay. also they have um, just the mixing of taking mundane items and making them more fantasy. So like the, the illustration really sells that. Uh, mm. I think if I remember correctly, the mage's the mage's staff is a squeaky kind of cleaner or, or broom, <laughs> I believe. Yeah, and yeah, yeah. And to, to make that kind of joke. Uh, then we have the mixologist, who's supposed to be kind of a cleric class, uh, mm-hmm. healer, but he's got um, magical booze, which you add an adjective to it. Amazing. And that adjective is what it is, uh, what the grog uh, that he has is. And we got the thief, which is also very self explanatory. Mm-hmm. It was, uh, this is like a fun little story. This is some people like uh, oh, yeah. when we released the. Playtest version. Uh, every class had an illustration except the thief because we still hadn't, it still wasn't done. But so we left like a, it was just a white page, like the invisible stalker in the monster manual. And people thought that was on purpose. Like the thief was supposed to be sneaky, not be caught. And like when we added the illustration, people were like, wait, wait, <laughs> if we actually had an art, like we, we thought it was the point was not having anything. 
so got confused with that. Uh, I mean, that would be an art choice to just like have them be absent on the page. Fair enough. Yeah, I mean, again, not I'm not that clever. Uh, <laughs> it was one of those moments I was like, that was actually pretty good, but I already paid for the art, so I'm gonna. So we're it. using it, yeah. We're using it, <laughs> yeah, and, yeah. And, a, and a thief is more like he can resist opening locks. He's like more exploration based kind of needs and he can make disguises that's his whole thing like he can make copies forgeries uh very easily and that's his deal we had the hunter which is camouflage dude with a pat so the pat is is your creative input what, what kind of pat you have it's really fun too he uh it's one of these details that i i don't think if i always wonder if people catch on but he has a gun but his gun doesn't work and has no ammo but we don't say it like it's just like we don't say it in description. It's just in the gear. Okay. You have to make just connection that there's no ammo and okay. it's just for shows. So okay. it's kind of like that. Or like, mm-hmm. for instance, not every class has a weapon mm-hmm. uh, with a stars in set, but actually they all do have a weapon. It's just not obvious at first. But most yeah. people, when they play, they catch, catch on to that really fast. It's mm-hmm. really fun. And then the final vocations, the dancer, which is the weirdest one, and the one most people like mixologist and the dancer are the one people really like. So yeah. the dancer is like he's tuned into the rhythm of the world, like so he's mm-hmm. like good vibes, dude. He's kind of uncanny in the sense that he can feel vibrations. And his abilities is one of the, the funnest one. He has psych psychometry, I don't even know how to say it, which is a kind of a pseudoscience thing where you can feel the memories of anything you touch like you you have oh, access okay to that. yeah so he kind of is like that he's like all the, the vibes kind of a antenna to the world you know like he, cool. he's picking up everything and dancing and it's kind of supposed <laughs> to be the monk archetype if you mm-hmm. will like fights with our weapons dance moves or weapons uh and those are the five five i don't, I don't yeah know. Those are, the, those are some of the vocations that you can play in the game. Right. <laughs> um, so when you're making your character for the game, we've gone to the, you kind of pick your origin, you, you pick your vocation. Is there any uh, kind of other decisions you need to make when creating your character for the game? Or Yeah, there's the, the final step is choosing mm-hmm. qualities. Mm-hmm. It will actually choose backgrounds, but backgrounds are really straightforward. Okay. They are the, they're the social group from which your character came from. And they used to just kind of help you think about your character. For instance, if, you, if both, like two players pick uh, the same class, what makes them difference? Yeah. different is like, mm-hmm. oh, one of them is has a proletariat background and another one has the artist background. So like what, and it's more asking like, what I do you think each freelancer is different in this case? And each one has descriptions uh, that kind of give you the vibe of what it is, but it's just general like factions in a way that your character belong to or belongs to. And then the final step is the quality system, which is basically, again, to try and help people create characters, make this easier. It's basically just picking something that makes your character special and unique and put in right next to a stat so that it boosts your stats in certain situations. And we give examples of, it can be anything in the sense that it can be that you're bald, that you're tall, uh, that you're divorced. It can be anything like- Enthusiastic. Yeah, either (laughs) physical or uh, emotional, really anything. And And we kind of, ask people to be specific because these mm-hmm. are like the, the defining qualities of your core mm-hmm. get it qualities uh defining <laughs> qualities of your character yeah uh and we also like try to give some some help when trying to think of this so stop thinking about your class mm-hmm. uh your vocation so like what kind of things that a magic user does like oh magic users are like nerds so you could put like your big mm-hmm. nerd like you're uh, addicted to books like some of the um, some of the favorite ones i've seen is color theory um 
like an for style was one people put in too. Mm-hmm. Uh, and, and they're used like in, the idea is that you try to use them, interpret them as like really go wide with interpretation so you can abuse the system. Sure. So, yeah. So people would try to use them in, in wild ways. Uh, but yeah, that's kind of gist of the quality system. I mm-hmm. think it's better explained in the book than I'm explaining right now. And it's, <laughs> sure. it's usually something that people really just catch on really easily because you mm-hmm. st- you start by adding two at the beginning, but by mm-hmm. as you level up, you add more. And then by then people, oh, I, I know what I'm going to add in. Oh, I, I know. Like I already know who my character is. So it flows better. Yeah, definitely. Basically the sum up of character creation, you choose an origin, choose a vocation, a background, and you add qualities to your stats. Mm-hmm. And that's it. So this is something you could do really quickly with a bunch of new players before before you're starting the game. So you people don't have to kind of go away and make their character. They can come to the table and kind of do it all together. It felt like that sort of kind of character creation process. Um, and the uh, so running the game as well, if I understand it right, it's uh, the mechanics are like uh, are quite quite simple. So you just need two six sided dice. You roll them. And then you add any bonuses, and I assume that's like from what you were talking about with like your qualities and things like that. And that's it. And then you just that's see it. if, and just depending on what the target number is really for what you're trying yeah. to do. It's supposed to be you know, simple. Mm-hmm. It is supposed to be like uh, another inspiration for the game was mm-hmm. looking at Japanese tabletop RPGs because I was like, mm-hmm. okay, I like video games, no JRPGs, but what about? Yeah the tabletop scene there. And mm-hmm. I was really fascinated by some of the science struggles that we have in Brazil. Mm-hmm. Uh, as you know, the weird dice is not so easily available. So okay. in Japan, they use a lot of these sixes because that's the die oh, they had available. Right. Okay. Yeah, yeah. Uh, for instance, in Brazil, it's more common to find D10s because uh, Vampire the Masquerade was absolutely huge. Oh, then it was right. I didn't find, know like, that. Okay. Weird dice. Like, mm-hmm. I, I didn't have weird RPG dies for many, many years. Okay. Uh, and, I, and I live in a rather, let's say, like big city, you know, so the further away you get from that, the harder it is. So like the choice yeah, of D6 was based on that too. Yeah, and, so everyone can play then, yeah. Yeah, like a joke, it's like you can find, anyone, everyone has a board game with like some yeah. basic right, or play yes. around. Yeah. <laughs> And and I like them because they're tiny. I I like the tiny D sixes, so uh, mm-hmm. <laughs> just that. And and inspired by recent games I played, of course. Like if you play mm-hmm. Disco Elysium and you read this game, you'll see a lot of similarities. Like I've taken things uh, straight up, just same name, but just kind mm-hmm. of adapted it to the system. I was just really inspired by the way they describe skills because mm-hmm. it's very traditional uh, in terms of system too. Like it's at number compare it to a target number and that's it. But mm-hmm. the way to describe the skills, I think that really helps the more creative side of things. Like they, mm-hmm. In that case of the video game, it's very strict because someone has to program everything. But like of the course. way to describe that, I, I thought of as something made by people who played tabletop RPGs. Mm-hmm. So I tried to bring that to the skills, which is they have really broad definitions and they are meant to be interpreted in different ways. So, like, there's no violence skill or something like that. There's no fighting skill. You have fresh, which is to destroy things, fresh uh, mm-hmm. things. And the idea was that to not be specific, but to let people interpret. So people catch on really quick that they can use that for justifying. They can justify the use of that skill for, like, combat, but also to everything that is tied to your body moving and using violence in general, mm-hmm. not just for combat. There's mm-hmm. the there's one I really liked at stomach, which is not just uh, having a like a strong guts, you know, being gutsy, mm-hmm. but also literally your stomach. So like how you react to food, poison, these things. How yeah. you can do that, mm-hmm. and then the more not so like not so constitutional like thing, which is the how well can you handle. Uh, pain suffering in general how can you stomach and that's the, the little 
mm-hmm. <laughs> what we do. Like, how can you stomach the world? You know, how yeah. can you stomach uh, that kind of stuff? It's not physical; it's more mental. And mm-hmm. that was kind of the way because they do that a lot in this coliseum. I was like, that's like okay. the best part, in my opinion. Yeah. Uh, so I tried to bring that in, and uh, and I think all the inspirations was just uh, I grew up playing mm-hmm. uh, 2.5 D D. Yeah. So I kind of just I love how to say when I when I made this game I wanted it to be I think there was a review by Chris McDonald that really just he just said exactly what I wanted which this could be someone's first and favorite RPG yeah so I wanted to give like the classic in a way experience but more streamlined more modern mm-hmm. more accessible. But I still yeah. wanted to have like the math, you know, the dumb. You would roll a dice and add a number compared to thing, which is not very practical, not very elegant, but it's it has a feel to it. It has a tactile feel yeah. to it. It's really, uh, to me, core of the what people expect from an RPG. You know? Yeah. Um, that was part of why it's so simple too. Definitely. So, like, simple and elegant definitely works with with RPGs. Um, and I mean, people have agreed, like you say, because you won. Uh, congratulations on winning the Indie Groundbreaker Award, Game of the Year for this year. Um, so you know, clearly, other people agree that that simple kind of approach could be somebody's kind of first and really accessible introduction to tabletop RPGs. Um, talking about the the actual stories in the game. So when you set off, so you've made your character, you're sat at the table. What sort of uh, stories and adventures are the characters going to go on in Brave Zenith? Yeah, that is the, the part I really like about it. Uh, the idea was again, I was I love fantasy games, and mm-hmm. it can be hard to think of quests and things. Yeah. But then uh, the idea in the book is to try to think of mundane things, let's say day to day quests, like going uh, visit a friend in a faraway city, uh, cleaning your house, uh, doing doing the dishes, these kind of things, and then. Give them a fantasy twist. And the example I give in the book, which is the Star Adventure, is you find a magic lamp, and instead of a wish, you are you're ordered to clean a genie's house. Like the quest is not to. Oh, no. It, it is a dungeon, but it's you're not fighting anyone in the dungeon. Yeah, you're yeah, trying yeah. to clean the dungeon. <laughs> uh, mm-hmm. So it's this kind of jokey, almost very casual, very normal thing. Like the next adventure I'm working on is just about going to to the bar and mm-hmm. having a night of fun. I'm really, it's really inspired by. I really like Warhammer, fantasy mm-hmm. role play because oh, yeah, they had yeah. these more mundane adventures. Like sure, you, mm-hmm. you you had the cultists fighting, but there was also the adventures. Just like they're just going around bars and doing shit, and I love that. But it's also what I tried to do was that to take these mundane things and turn them into fun little fantasy things. Yeah, definitely. That I mean, yeah. So, so the book has that kind of first adventure in um, that you can play along. So, what advice uh, would you give to uh, people running uh, running this game for the first time? So, if they're like, okay, this sounds great, I want to to get people to the table to play. What advice would you would you give them? Mm, I'd say. The best way, and what I've seen people doing, which makes me really happy, is just to, since it has this kind of weird setting that is kind of almost meme-like and very modern, but still has its fantasy elements, it just takes something you like. Uh, like, really, uh, I've done that, and I've seen people doing it, which take a meme you like and make an adventure out of it. Uh, that That's one of the tips I give. Or just, like, think of... of of dumb situations you've been to and just try to give it a fantasy spin or like look at the world that you live around think of places mm-hmm. and try to interpret them as like fantasy tropes like one that I really like you know shopping malls are like big dungeons uh, mm-hmm. any really big building in our world is like just a big dungeon in disguise uh, so try to f- just take these mundane day to day things and then just give it a fantasy spin that is like I think just the real secret here in a way. Uh and mm-hmm. yeah, like the adventures people have written already and published, they they really got that. Which is just mm-hmm. like just very mundane, but then it has the fantasy twist and yeah. then you just let 
players be players. Uh, yeah. People catch that really fast. There's no, there's no real secret, right? Yeah. Or, or I, or, or like I could say a generic but always true thing, which is like, which I, I try to put in the book, which is what mm -hmm. I believe. It's like you're not playing RPGs is more like having a conversation with friends. Uh, mm -hmm. It's more akin to sitting down at a bar and having a drink and chatting, but then there's a game in the middle, which is just yeah. like uh, just an excuse, really. Yeah, uh, an excuse to spend time together and connect with people. Yeah, and that's just uh, that's always the best tips I I think for for people who are doing for the first time. I, I have a lot of friends who. Like they know that I write RPGs and they get interested and they start oh, yeah. like doing RPGs, playing RPGs, mm -hmm. and they and they and they come to me and they ask like, "Oh, I'm gonna run the first game, whatever." And I always say, I always they say these things like, you know, it's just a conversation, uh, mm -hmm. some classic stuff like, "Oh, you know, they they won't know if you fucked up as a GM." Like, <laughs> yeah, if it's their first game, yeah, that, that, that's usually the, the biggest concern is always with the GM mm -hmm. role. That's why I wrote like mm -hmm. a GM section for this book, which I'm, mm -hmm. I'm really proud of because mm -hmm. it's it's the hardest role. But it, there's a, people are very insecure about it, and they mm -hmm. re, the reality is like people don't notice if you fuck up. People don't notice if you don't know stuff. And uh, I always try to give those tips in the book too, like to be open when you don't know. Just talk, talk to people. Say I don't know. What do you guys think? You know, mm -hmm. uh, this kind of thing. I say that the book has all the answers. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Um, yeah. So if uh, listening to this chat, you are interested in purchasing the book, you can get it on the Soul Muppet Store, at Soul Muppet Store even. Um, and I've got the link in the chat or the show notes if you're on the podcast and up in the stream, uh, up on the stream screen. That was difficult to say. Uh, now, if you're watching live, uh, so that's soul, uh, soulmuppet-store.co.uk products uh, for slash brave zenith. Check that out there. Uh, all the links in the chat for you to have a look at. Um, so with the game, one thing I've realized we haven't even talked about yet is some of the creatures uh, that characters can encounter because there are some wild and wonderful things in there. Um, so could you get talk us through and give us some examples of, of some of your favorite ones? Yeah, um, I think my favorite one um is the butter golem uh <laughs> butter construct i think it's uh it's called mm -hmm. uh it's just it's just a fun i think the visual is really striking and it's just like this is it it gives the tone really well of the game like i talk about like i love food putting food into games and that is kind of the way people uh let's say they go oh okay so that's how how you do stuff here so you just take a golem and fantasy and just like, oh, it's made of butter now. And you just go with that. And I love that he has like a butter knife stuck to him, kind of butter sword. That's from, <laughs> that's from, that's from the from Bakhtil, the first adventure I wrote. So I, yeah. I wanted to bring him in because I think he really sells mm -hmm. that. There's the... I wanted also to bring like classic... I know it's not supposed, it's supposed to be not D&D, but like there's some classic iconic stuff like the Beholder. I wanted to bring that yeah. in a way. So there's the Observer, which is a, mm -hmm. a big uh, sea urchin. has one eye and shoots lasers. But he's also actually just really shy and socially awkward. That is Dio. So every monster has like a loot table, uh, which is not quite loot. It's just yeah. a, a way to give them more details so he has like books on how to talk to people he has rpgs there's missing pieces so he's like a shy awkward little nerd guy but he's also a terrifying creature there are the mermaids which are actually kids have to they've drowned in the archipelago and they became these sea creatures with four arms uh and they're just pure chaos they just steal things from you and uh, yeah, and all monsters kind of have this, which they have a, a loot table and a mood table, which just I try to give like hints as to how they work without like actually spelling out exactly how they work, because when you try to be specific, it can also be limiting. In yeah, my writing style specifically, I always find that when I start writing too much, I it gets too rigid. Mm -hmm. I don't like that. 
yeah. I don't have the skill yet. Um, <laughs> so these tables are like really funny. Uh, they're fun ways to tell little stories about these creatures and how to also show that with my hope that not a lot of these creatures are actually inherently violent or anything. They are just weird little things and and how they can be like starting points for adventures. Uh, like some a one person who did publish an adventure, he chose the mermaids as kind of a centerpiece and he got it quite easily that they're not like monsters they are kids so he yeah. put that into the adventure and even made them into more like even a playable i think there's a playable origin then uh and it's just kind of the monsters kind of go like that now i'm trying to remember more than this there's a tree are my favorite like these this two yeah, yeah. uh oh tree actually um yeah yeah, go ahead. I was going to say, I think there was a one like the Capimera. Oh, yeah. Like that. no, that, that's yeah. a great one. That's mm-hmm. a great one. I completely forgot about that one. Mm-hmm. Uh, that one was kind of, I remember another one too. Oh, thank God. Yeah, yeah, yeah go ahead. Yeah, yeah. Um, so the Capimera was supposed to be a joke. It's a uh, capybara and mm-hmm. it makes yeah. a bit of mm-hmm. So it's supposed to be this monstrous thing and kind of a, a dragon, if you will. Uh, and it just came from uh, this idea that I wanted to put like a cliche, like Latin America thing, which is the capivara and, uh, you know, fantasy context. And yeah, again, yeah. Yeah, I'm just trying to show uh, my hope is that when I show these dumb ideas that I have, that people can go, I have dumb ideas too. I can do this. Uh, and, and, yeah. and it's easy because it, it just take ideas from everywhere and it's like mm-hmm. you steal stuff and you mix them together and something mm-hmm. new comes out. I like the rubber dragon a lot. It's also one of my favorites, which is mm-hmm. just a kind of a Komodo dragon, but he's made of rubber. Um, so it kind of looks like a tire <laughs> the art. <laughs> okay. Uh, but he also yeah. uses, uh, it's also to show kind of like how you cannot like say if you're going to fight these monsters, not all of them can be actually fought fairly or straightforward. The rubber dragon is immune to everything because it's kind of like made of tough rubber, it's magical, whatever. But for he's immune to everything, but his own acid. Like his acid is the oh, only okay. thing that can cut him. So it, there's that choke kind of not choke, but like this fun play. Opportunity here, and uh, and again, he's called a dragon, but he's not like a, a traditional dragon. So I tried to bring a Komodo dragon, which is a, a real life example. Yeah, yeah. So it's just a big mm-hmm. lizard. To kind of do this all the time. I was just trying to give a really, let's uh, say, simple archetypical monsters, but they're also inspired by normal things that you see in the world. You know, like. Like for instance, the the mermaids I talked about. The name is important too. Like I, I wanted names that were easy to to pronounce or uh, they're easy mm-hmm. to to understand and grasp really easily. Yeah. Uh, like the observer, a, a butter construct. Uh, there are some that are Brazilian names because then there's nothing I can do. Yeah. Uh, like the guara, which is the bird. Mm-hmm. Uh, the bird is a thief. He has his beak is a lockpick too, so he just goes into people's house and steals stuff. And like rubber dragon, you know, it's always very simple, objective uh, noun thing, and I really love that because that's that's the easiest yeah. way to write. Really, uh, adjectives are, are really cheating mm-hmm. uh, when you write them. Um, well, it's like you say, it's clear communication then, isn't it? It's like from what you were saying at the beginning with your the way you were taught to kind of think about kind of communication. So it's making it, getting that concept across in a really accessible way. Um, so speaking a little bit about, kind of you said some of the names are Brazilian. Uh, obviously, you're from Brazil and you said um, the game is inspired by Brazilian culture. Um, so where else would that kind of crop up in the game? Where would people see kind of elements of that? The best place to see that is in the art i think the art really captures that because that was a big part was trying to give uh to show brazilian culture to that there are a lot of references that are only understandable to brazilians too uh that was on purpose uh because we wanted to really 
uh, it's also about like this book came about in a Kickstarter that had other Latin America creators and mm-hmm. the idea, like the, let's say more idea, idealistic vision of Braves and was to be like, what if RPGs were, were from Brazil, like not from America, not from like, yeah, D&D, not mm-hmm. from Gary Gygax, but what if they were created in, in this other environment? So, mm-hmm. but there's still fantasy. Um, so you can see that, uh, a lot of the humor in the art comes from that. And so the artist is a Brazilian comic artist. Mm-hmm. It's really, that has, he, he's specialized in humor. Uh, also the, the food uh, that we have in the game. So there's yeah. a, a tiny cooking system in the game, which make mentions to a few foods, the names of things. Uh, but just in general, just the vibe of being uh, here and, an adventure that is indebted, so you have that, you will suffer into that. You are in a tropical setting, ideally. Um, you And the, the JRPG-inspired stuff, like, I cannot emphasize enough how, like, piracy was a huge part of how I play video games when I was a kid. Like, this was the only way <laughs> to play Yeah, like, yeah, yeah. Imagine this, like, my family wasn't poor or anything. Like, we were middle class. Like, video yeah. games were expensive. But mm-hmm. even then, the only way, even if you had money, the only way was to buy pirate games because it was simply impossible price-wise. But that also created, like, this bootleg culture or, like, mm. and, like a lot of these games weren't translated. There, there was no no games in Portuguese, not even... Yeah, Portugal, which is different from Portuguese from Brazil. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, you know. Uh, so, like, a lot of times we were playing these games that were arcane in a way because we couldn't even read them. And they were from different cultures. And a lot of them were from Japan because a lot of uh, Brazil is the second country with most Japanese people uh, in the world, aside from Japan, because we had. Uh, ton of Japanese immigrants back in the early 20th century mm-hmm. and uh, a lot of cultural like television we bought we had good relationships with Japan so we bought yeah. a lot of their shows so a lot of what showing my mom watched anime in the 60s oh, cool. 70s. so like we have this culture kind of mm-hmm. it's part of resident culture anime is really popular here it's really strong yeah so lots of these inspirations kind of sipping in terms of the, it's very it's not like the brazilian influence is not in your face like punching you oh, not, sure. <laughs> yeah and that, that is something like brazilians have to talk uh talk to me about which is like it's not a cliche representation of brazil like it's not mm-hmm. like what is often portrayed which is especially in fantasy which is the colonial uh era uh, yeah. No, mm-hmm. taking local folk, uh, folklore, which uh, which doesn't belong to us. We and and Brazilian folklore is very polemic because it, the mm-hmm. common folkloric folklore tales were not they were stolen from the natives and yeah. changed by uh, white people uh, from like the big cities to kind of get, create a. F- fake in a way Brazilian identity uh, mm-hmm. that the colony was struggling with. Uh, so people really appreciated when we brought these cultural elements that were not so uh, cliche and obvious, yeah. but also we are focusing, like I talk about that too when I talk Brazilians well about this game. It's like not trying to show the entire Brazil, entirety of Brazil mm-hmm. because it's too big and yeah, every region is completely distinct. This is mm-hmm. very specific part of Brazil, uh, part of my, my reality, my mm-hmm. my experience, really. So I tried to just bring that. And, and it's, I, like, I hate saying it, but it's more vibes. Uh, <laughs> yeah, no, sure. Mm. Uh, no, that's great. I mean, yeah, that's that, that's definitely great to have. And I love that um, table, indie tabletop RPGs have different voices and perspectives. And you can, you know, no matter where you are in the world, you can experience, you know, different vibes from different places so that's yeah really- i mean w- when i think about like when i was writing this i was very concerned about like putting Brazilian references and things 
But then a friend of mine convinced me in the way that it's like you grew up playing RPGs that were made by Americans, uh, British yeah. people, mm-hmm. and they too put in their culture in there. And like mm. you, you learned that you kind of you didn't get everything, but you still play them. Uh, so it, like if you could do it, why can't other people do it? Yeah, it's the same thing really. Yeah, exactly. I can. Yeah, I completely agree. I couldn't agree more. Um, well, we're coming up to near the top of the hour and near the end of our time. Um, so, is there anything more about uh, the game about Brave Zenith you would like to to share with us now while we while we have the time here? Uh, I just it's just my my favorite thing I've done so far. I think it's mm-hmm. the it's the game I wanted to play. You know, it's very cliche to say that, but it's like, it's exactly the game I wanted to make. So it's actually the game I like to play. And, uh, I think it's, I think it's very light, lighthearted, fun. It's very, it's a very funny experience. A lot of people think, and I, I agree. And I think it's a, a tiny little different thing. Maybe it's not the most innovative game. It's not the most uh, out there rules. Not even the best rules or anything like that. But I think the whole package is really something special. It's just a different vibe. I think the art is amazing and uh, it really speaks for the book. Uh, it is the the essence of it. Like if I could, it's not even the writing, if I could say. Like, the writing was the beginning, but I, I could say what really is the, the heart of the game is, is the art. It really sells that. And uh, and I think it's just it's just a, a game that allows you to be creative. Mm-hmm. It, it does not force you to be creative. More so, gives you space to be creative. Yeah. And I think that's just lovely. <laughs> Yeah, well, it's always great to hear people say there was a game I wanted and it didn't exist, so I made it. So that's always kind of the best sort of games, I think, that that get generated. Um, Thank you so much for coming on uh, to talk to us about Brave Zenith and share your your game with us. Um, If you are interested, you can pick up the game now at the Stoll Muppet store. uh, And the links are in the comment section or in the show notes of the podcast you're listening to. So please go and check that out because the best way to support indie tabletop RPG creators is to buy their things. Um, Also, uh, if we want to catch you on Twitter can, and people want to talk to you more about different RPGs, uh, Night Ramen is the best place to catch you online, yeah? Yep. That's Great. It. So Night Ramen, we'll put that in the show notes or it's up on the screen right now. So if you have any other questions and you just missed out the opportunity to ask here, uh, you can jump on there and do that. Um, so I'll say thank you so much for coming on uh, to talk about your game with us and thank you for giving up your time. Thank you for the invitation. You're very welcome. Uh, next week, we are back with Not D&D. Uh, we are talking about the fake core systems. So that's next week, and we live stream at 10 p.m. BST, or you can catch up uh, wherever you're listening to podcasts uh, if you just search for Not D&D. Um, so thanks very much for listening along, and that's all for this week. Bye. Bye.